Mike's just missing Oakley's and he can be like every one of those like right wing dudes <laughs> you see the videos <laughs> for on Facebook. <laughs> you know what, man? The car. free of the market, the free of the people. I don't care what yeah. anybody says. <laughs> All right, brother. Man, I'm pissed off. I better get in my F-150. <laughs> I don't care what anybody says. Trump won. I don't care about all that evidence you want to show me. Fucking Trump won, man. You can't tell me otherwise. Oh my god! Babe, have you seen my Oakleys? I need to make a video. <laughs> <laughs> Baby, hurry! You could dedicate a whole podcast alone to the fuckery that Reagan put forth. So, oh my god, yeah, this dude, is going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to shit on this old fucker. Um, oh geez. yeah, yeah. You, 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 I showed you the t-shirt preview for the uh, Reagan t-shirt we're doing. Oh, it's going to be so good. I can't wait. It looks so good. It's going to piss I mean, off just, my parents. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's not yeah, just going to piss off great. your. It's going to piss off random people in grocery stores. I mean, I if you wait. wear it, you're. <laughs> oh fuck! I'm just going to warn you guys. I do lean a little to the right, but I like to entertain other ideas. And you know, it's not. I'm like, I'm not like a. You know, you know, like death penalty, like totally conservative socially and stuff. You know. Yeah, as long as you got an open mind and you're just like yeah. more more than anything, we want to be funny. Like we kind of mm-hmm. started this all with the intention of just being entertaining. Yeah. And then we just started trying to get more informative as we've gone on because we found that that seems to be entertaining. Like people yeah. like it. So we're just kind of do- trying to go in that direction. But yeah, I mean, as long as you're willing to just hang out and shoot the shit, it's all good. Well, my, yeah, my dad's side of the family is more conservative. My mom's side of the family is more liberal. So like, and like they, they, you know, they love each other and such, but when they have political discussions, like they've learned real quick how to keep it civil. <laughs> yeah. Open minded. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I didn't really know what your background was. I know that the the meme page that you run is mostly ironic, but it's like you post a lot of great shit on there that I'm a big fan of. Um, but I yeah. know you're obviously not a tanky, but when you say you're right-leaning, like, uh, g- give me kind of an idea. Libertarian. Okay, libertarian. We, yeah, we had a friend on here not long ago who was pretty libertarian. I like to poop on, like, the extremities of ideas because I think that... They just don't work in the short run. Like, I mean, in the long run, you might eventually have some sort of system that's considered really extreme compared to modern standards. But, um, so like, I, I mean, I poop on the left and right all the time just cause it's kind of funny. And, you know, you get, you get like wars in the comment section about what's right and what's wrong, but people typically don't unfollow you. And so it's fine. But, um, I like the free market and not, in the sense that, like, block him, deregulation. <laughs> like, Sorry, I'm just fucking around. But um, like, I personally think there shouldn't be a minimum wage. Just saying. But on the same token, like, I'm not a Republican who's anti-union because you know part of the free market is when you have unions, and if uh, if people form unions, then you know that's up to them. That's part of the free market. And corporations got to deal with that. That's an that's an interesting outlook because most. Most American libertarians are putting the company owner above any of the other <laughs> formative parts of the company, for sure. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you like know, that, that's that's a different outlook for sure, and it's but, uh, definitely welcome. You know, yeah, for me, but I mean, absolutely. yeah, and my thing is like, you can't totally just ignore the other parts of the business because they're there, and like, you just like I've seen through history because I, I mean, I took big into history and history classes, like you mistreat you know a worker or someone they're not gonna just sit and you know personally i i don't practice anymore but um i am a third generation jew my family came from uh lithuania 
right as anti-Semitism was ramping up again in Europe. Yeah. It seems to happen mm-hmm. over and over. <laughs> was that in the uh, 30s or? It was before that. Uh, it was right before the Red Revolution. And that was during mm-hmm. a time when the crown was pushing a lot of anti-Jew uh, propaganda yeah. because a bunch of prominent Bolsheviks were Jewish. Well, genetically Jewish, you know. Yeah. I took an AP Euro class in high school and it's just like the Jews were always like, scapegoat, which kind of was sad. It's par for the course, but, you know, yeah. we got a good sense of humor out of it. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like it's happening again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is, man. QAnon's anti-Semitic as fuck. I mean, it is straight up Protocols of Elders of Zion bullshit. Like, it blows my mind people don't see it, but, you know, if they knew history, they wouldn't fall victim to that shit to begin with, so. Yep. Yeah, I actually wrote an essay about this for scholarship, for free speech, and I'm just like, because, like, you know, there's, on college campuses a lot, you see kind of the sentiment where it's like you want to limit, you know, speech that's considered hateful and such, which, I mean, you can get the intention behind that. The problem is, like, stuff like QAnon, which... Just, I mean, I don't understand how people believe it. It's still going to spread online. Yeah. yeah. Like, you're just not going to stop. And if you just limit speech in person, you're not going to ever talk to these people and tell them. That's why China like, has a great idea, man. Let's yeah. limit the internet. <laughs> a, a true freedom of speech works if there's no dumb people. But that's not the country we live in. It's like I, I hate to be that. Yeah, I, I hate to be that person yeah. who's like, we need to limit the Constitution. I mean, personally, I'd like to burn the Constitution, but I, I hate to be that person who's like, I want to limit certain parts of the Constitution. But the truth is, it's very hard to just give unlimited freedom to groups of people who have no idea what to use it because they've been so conditioned and brainwashed for generations that they don't even know what. What freedom of speech actually means, let alone what it implies. Yeah, they don't understand freedom the of speech danger. Means I can use the N word on Twitter and without getting fired. That's right? what they think it means. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That, like, that's just <laughs> that is what you, they. Yeah, you gotta expect a little bit of backlash. <laughs> like, and I, I did a class, and I told the kids they could leave if they wanted to, um, where I showed a documentary on the creation of the atomic bomb and the fallout from the atomic <clears> bomb. And um, it didn't pull any punches. I made sure to find one that was like, yes, the Japanese were going to surrender. They realized they had really fucked themselves over by being pinned between China and the United States and Russia. And, uh, you know, the scientists said, don't drop the bomb. And we just dropped the bomb anyway on two cities that had literally no military importance. Yeah. Um, and of course, it, it showed what fallout looks like. And you would not believe the backlash I got, not just from the school board, but from the parents, because kids were coming home and saying that America did something wrong. It, yeah, it's, yeah. it's incredible the amount of brainwashing that isn't just institutional, but that has become familial and something that even Generation X is, is holding up. Like the fact that I even mentioned that maybe America did something fucked up, you know, 70 years ago, more than 70 yeah. years ago, yeah. was just they could not deal with it. And uh, yeah, yeah I, I got in a lot of yeah. trouble for that <laughs> as a teacher. I don't regret it though. Good for you Fuck doing them. it though. No, I mean, I mean the thing was too, is you, you gave it, you made an option for the students. It's not like you forced them to. So. I did. Yep. You're allowed to leave, but you know, it, I think that just goes to show what you're saying. All everybody on here with this concept of, you know, education is even when it's looking you dead in the face, um, a lot of people would prefer a very just convenient lie. 
Yeah. I think you'd be yeah. happy to know our school does not give Columbus Day off. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Good. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, yeah, let me, uh, let's jump into this because uh, yeah. we'll probably yeah. do this all night if we allow ourselves to. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Turn Left Podcast. I'm Mike, here as always with Sterling, Cosper, and Ward. And tonight we have a couple of special guests. We have with us Jaron Perlman. Hey, guys. And he is an anarchist and an author. The first real author we've had on the podcast, definitely. It is. It's pretty cool. <laughs> Do you want to go ahead and uh, plug your books? Let's give out the uh, titles of your books so people can check those out. Yeah, absolutely. My most recent book is called The Politics of Fear, and it relates heavily to how emotions influence the way that we perceive our political world, both on the national and global spectrum. Nice. Sounds very interesting. And where can people find that? Um, you can find it directly on my website, jaronperlman.com. That's J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. Awesome. And with us, we also have Eric. Hi, guys. And he runs the Instagram page, a fellow politogrammer. He is Stalin's Gulag Camp on Instagram. So another uh, political shit poster, as we like to be. So uh, tonight we have all these guests with us to go over the first part of what will be at least two, possibly four episodes in a series of episodes on Reagan and Thatcher. We really don't know how this is going to uh, play out as far as length, but we know it's going to be a big one. So we will just uh, try and get into it right off the bat. So let me just uh, introduce the concept of it. So in talking about Reagan and Thatcher, the main point that we're going to be making is that they are responsible for the slow death of the middle class that we've seen over the last few decades. So in capitalism, there really isn't just supposed to be a middle class. It's not how capitalism actually works. It's not intended to work that way. There's supposed to be a wealthy elite, just a small handful of people, and they control all the wealth. And then the other 90% of the population that creates their wealth through their labor. And this is the working poor. They live out their lives in debt and scrape by. And then, you know, there's a few individuals that act as a go-between. You could call them the petty bourgeois. Uh, in feudalism, they were the lords and vassals. And, you know, since capitalism is just the extension of feudalism, that's how it's supposed to work. But the point is that these people in the middle, they're not supposed to be an entire class of people. The only time that that group expands to the point that you could call it a class is when there's some kind of massive disruption in capitalism and the wealth of the elites is redistributed. And that could be because of some kind of disaster like the plague in Europe, which created a middle class then, or it could be a revolution or like what created the middle class in America, which was World War II, when the rich were taxed heavily to pay for it. And this kept up afterwards because it was very popular. You know, it was really beneficial for the economy and for everyone involved. And that's when you see the golden age of America that all the boomer Republicans want to return to. This is when the wealthy paid an effective tax rate of 90% or more. And you had men working in factories making the equivalent of $50 an hour usually in today's dollars. And that equates to 100K a year. I mean, quick aside, if you want to calculate your rough yearly salary, just take your hourly wage and double it. And that's why it's $750 an hour is so fucking pitiful. It's like 15K a year. Even a $15 minimum wage is not that much. 30000 a year, like you can't live on that. Anyway, this is where you get the good old days of America, as they call them. And still... This only applies to white men. Obviously, if you ask any minorities, women, any marginalized people whatsoever, they'd of course have a different story to tell, but that's an entire episode in itself. So this is where you get the trope of the traditional family, the mom, dad, 2.5 kids, the dog in a picket fence house in the suburbs, yearly vacations, two cars, a chicken in every oven, the whole Norman Rockwell picture. 
But this is an unacceptable situation for the wealthy to be paying this much in taxes and even have this semblance of a functioning country with so many people prospering. And I should say, this is also what really kills me about it is that even even then things were not so great for a wide swath of the population. But even just having that small middle class that existed was just too much to bear for the wealthy. So this is where Reagan comes in and Thatcher in the UK to cut all those taxes and regulations that were propping up this middle class. There's a lot of work here culturally, of course, that led them to both be able to step in and pull the rug out from under the working class. The 60s and the hippies trying and failing to overturn the entire system and the very real threat of communism coming from Eastern Europe and Asia leads us into the 70s, which is the decade of backlash from authority and the elites. And this is actually another great segment of Zinn's book as well, by the way. This is actually where I got a lot of the info that I'll be going over tonight was Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. But I'd say the general point is that the prosperity people were seeing, coupled with communist rhetoric, which was a lot more prevalent in America than people today realize, because we're living in the post-Cold War Red Scare era where the only thing people know about communism is that it killed billions and fails every time it's tried, whatever literal brainwashing and bullshit they've been fed their whole lives. But the ideas of power for the working classes, equality for the sexes and the races, this was gaining some serious popularity thanks to the Soviet Union and Maoist China. So I don't want it to seem like the elites just randomly decided that they didn't want to keep paying 90% of the taxes on the wealth that they controlled. Of course, this is true, but people legitimately trying to create a better world, and that world wasn't going to be a place that included a bunch of insanely wealthy people whose families haven't worked in several generations. So they had to do something. So they basically created the paradigm that carries us into today. The wealthy seem to realize that at this point, they could use culture, nationalism, and privilege, namely the fear of losing that privilege, and the deep emotional reaction those things all evoke in the working class, relatively uneducated people, to essentially rob them blind and have them cheer for it. And this is really obvious in both the Democrat and Republican parties today. It's extremely explicit in the Republicans, obviously, but the same principle is what keeps the Dems in power too. This is not going to be news to all us leftists, but if there are any liberals listening, I might have some bad news for you. <laughs> but the real irony at work here is that they use the fear of losing what little prosperity American middle class families had to scare them into willfully handing it over. And that's why it's such a common meme today that all the things they used to scare us about communism, starvation, unemployment, authoritarianism, they all happened under capitalism. And that's actually how capitalism operates. People just don't seem to realize it because we had a brief reprieve from that for a couple of decades that Americans have been desperately clinging to the memory of and trying to return to ever since. Let's just start us off. Anybody has anything they want to say? Any comments or anything? Well, I want to say something. I think part of the reason why Reagan got elected was because, you know, the 1970s had stagflation, right? High inflation, low growth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if you can go yeah. into it and explain it, if you like. Yeah, so basically, the 1970s was marred with what is in economics called cost push inflation, where the cost of supplying something is actually increasing significantly. And so what it does is it not only lowers production, but it also increases prices. That's why we got, during the 1970s, there was a lot of that. And that's why we got this thing called stagflation, where you had super high interest rates and super high um, inflation rates of inflation with you know almost no economic growth. And it seemed like something that was impossible to get out of. And I think people wanted to try something new with Reagan, something bold, like, because he was, you know, he wasn't big into politics. He was an actor beforehand and they wanted, you know, to try something new to get them out of that situation. So it brings up an interesting point in my reading about Reagan. I did get into a little bit of Jimmy Carter as well, who was the president before Reagan. And I had actually had the impression before <laughs> doing this reading that Carter was a relatively decent guy. You know, I hear a lot of people who whose opinions I respect, like just adults that I've known in my life growing up who say that Jimmy Carter was one of the best presidents that we've ever had. And prior to this, I had no reason to think otherwise because I didn't know a whole lot about him. But in my reading, I found that Carter was not actually all that different from a Reagan type as far as the economy is concerned. Like he actually did a lot to cut unions, like just cut the power that they had to decrease wages for the middle class or decrease any kind of representation that workers had. And also just severely cut taxes on the wealthy and their businesses. 
that he really was doing Reaganomics before Reagan. And we were actually seeing the beginnings of that same kind of separation of what people produce as opposed to what they get paid for it before Reagan even got into office. And then Reagan just drove that home and carried that same torch and just did even more of it. What'd you have there, Jaron? Well, it's just building on your point there. I think that the formative thing that created Ronald Reagan was the removal of the post-war welfare state that existed after World War II. And it, it didn't just fall under the remit of one singular singular U.S. president. I mean, we can look at Nixon removing the Bretton Woods system and the gold standard, moving into the Carter administration with everything you just mentioned, and then finally topping off and finishing with Reagan. And I think probably one of the most notable things about Reagan's presidency is because it coincided with the fall of the Soviet Union, it gave this beacon, this signal to the whole world that we're going to use liberal democracy. We're going to use free market liberal democracy and everybody should be following it because the whole world, proxy war or not, was looking at the Cold War and saying, which way are we going? Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think the ironic thing is not only did Reagan and Thatcher win that war of ideologies, but they also set into motion the very devices that would end up completely fucking liberal democracy. Yeah. <laughs> Reagan didn't actually like solve stagflation. I mean, he might have affected it a little bit, but it was actually the Federal Reserve under his tenure. That, But he doesn't control the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is his own thing that actually solved the period of stagflation. Interesting. I was just going to say that my impression now coming out of this of Carter is that he was basically like another Obama figure. Yeah. He gets the impression that or he gets the reputation that he has because he made a lot of symbolic gestures. He did a lot of things that seemed like he was really working for minorities or the working class. And what he was actually doing on paper was none of that. He was just handing everything to large businesses and just guiding all of his policy in what would going to be best for them, whether it was good for workers or not. And it usually wasn't. So that's the impression that Democrats. I have from him now. And I'm sure we could do a whole nother episode on Carter. It actually made me want to do an episode on him. So I'm sure we will do that in the future. But for now, let's start what is probably going to be the first of two episodes on Reagan, because I'm sure we're going to get a lot more material than we had planned on. Uh, Sterling, did you want to start with anything? Or did you want to get into anything or, or Ward? Because otherwise, I just have a bunch of sort of factoids. I'll just start listing off and then we can talk about them as we go if we want. Um, yeah, I mean, I would like to kind of keep this a little, you know, free flow. Obviously, we've prepared a lot. So we're going to get that informal type feel tonight just naturally. But I would like to, at least with my section, I'm going to do my best to kind of keep it more open, even though I have prepared quite a bit. I'm going to, you know, do it in sections so everyone can, you know, dive in here and there because I, I think that does just it's much more enjoyable but as far as Reagan the main thing I was looking into for tonight because we do have so many things we're going to tackle and we may end up turning into a two-part series uh, I wanted to jump on trickle-down economics or you know the what they call trickle-down economics or Reaganomics and the whole myth of it which the myth of trickle-down economics it's the theory that if the wealthy pay less in taxes and they get a little bit more tax breaks that allows them to keep more money at the end of the year on their income, then they will naturally invest into different businesses, uh, buy yachts, spoiler, trickle-down economics or Reaganomics, they don't work. You know, I'm not sure if anyone uh, realizes this, but uh, Reagan left office in 89. He was the president for most of the 80s. So I take it as of now, we're all doing really fucking good, right? A a show of hands, everyone just fucking loaded. (laughs) (laughs) I feel so trickled on. 
Right, exactly. Yeah. I just am constantly getting trickled on nonstop. Uh, so not only does the average American not have affordable housing, good paying jobs, access to quality food, we're not putting any money back. I mean, especially considering what we're going through right now with COVID. Yeah. Most people are lucky to not get kicked out of their homes right now. Let alone have savings. Yep. So if anyone's not aware, as of now, 30 years into this uh, experiment of Reaganomics, it doesn't work. And that really kind of wraps up the whole theory of it. But obviously, I'll go further into detail. Let's see here. What do I got? So 30 years into it, minimum wage today is almost on the penny the same it was under Reagan. And when I say that, I mean as far as what the dollar was worth under Reagan versus what the dollar's worth today. Obviously, the exact amount wasn't the same, but, you know, a dollar buys relatively, you know, what, half a dollar back then. I don't remember the exact math, but it really is almost the exact same fucking minimum wage. I think it's less. It may it may be a little less. It, it fluctuates a bit. So, I mean, it really depends on, you know, exactly. I, I think that the minimum wage actually decreased under Reagan. I think he actually brought it down. What you got, Jaron? I was just going to say, just as an extension of Reaganomics, we can even see it working actively now in the new COVID stimulus plan that was set forth in Congress. Mm -hmm. You know, case in point, there's literally nothing allotted to average people. And what is allotted to them is almost inaccessible. You have to go through this massive bureaucratic mess Mm -hmm. to even get anything. And meanwhile, you know, this whole thing is bankrolling corporations under the assumption that the economy is going to be somehow solvent if we just bail out the big guys. That is a direct extension of Ronald Reagan's rhetoric still resonating loudly to this day. And uh, you had something, Eric? Yeah, I still talk about minimum wage. Mm -hmm. You have to look um, at absolute minimum wage and inflation-adjusted minimum wage, like just to be defined, I think it's really important. Yeah, it is very important when considering the minimum wage that you do take inflation into account. Mm -hmm. It's actually very strange that we do not have an inflation guard tied to our minimum wage. I I think the number would be closer to like $18 an hour or something if since Reagan there was actually an inflation guard Mm -hmm. attached to it. I think something important to add along with that is that not only, you know, do we see this stagnation of the minimum wage, we also see this massive uptake and increase within productivity of every worker as well. And that's something to take into account of this idea of meritocracy. Oh, you get paid more for doing better work. When we look at, uh, you know, legitimate quantitative values, such as productivity and stuff, you know, you have people on computers now doing, you know, about double the work that people would back in, you know, Reagan's day. And we don't see a fair appreciation for that within wages. You know, you're paid the same and even in many considerable cases, less than someone back then would be in relation to your productivity. That is. I feel like I have twice the workload today than I had just last year pre-COVID. It's like all of these companies are using this as an opportunity to experiment with not only work from home, but how much workload can they increase on their employees due to the employees not having, you know, normal trips to work and, you know, what have you. And I think we're all experiencing an increase in, in workload right now. And that's for the few of us that are lucky to have a job still. Yeah. But, you know, we're talking about uh, minimum wage. It's also important to think about the maximum wage. You know, how much our billionaires and our super wealthy are making. Clearly, that has changed in the last 30 years since Reagan. I mean, if you look at the average CEO salary, I don't think it's going to be surprising that it is not stagnated at the same rate that the minimum wage has. Just during COVID, I think we all know the numbers of, you know, how many billionaires have doubled or tripled their fortune, you know, just in this last few months. Yeah. Go ahead, Jared. 
I was just going to say, to prove your point, CEO pay is 400 times that of the average worker in the U.S., and that doesn't exist <laughs> anywhere else in the world. Yeah. So I did, uh, real quick, like I said, I want to ask Eric, as the only professed libertarian among us tonight, because it actually seems like, you know, just from talking to you briefly so far, you do have a good grasp on like the details of these kind of things. Like, I think we all tend to focus more on concepts rather mm -hmm. than the actual like minute details of everything like this. But it seems like you are a guy for facts and figures. So what is like your take, at least on the idea of economics and what we would call the obvious failure of it? Would you consider that a failure or do you have some kind of other explanation from, you know, different from what I usually hear from typical reports? Republicans who just blame it on socialism, some kind of specter of socialism yeah. that we just don't seem to be able to see taking hold in America? I think Reaganomics can work under the right circumstances. And I think that Reaganomics came in at a wrong time because it, it came in at the confluence or the very beginning of what is considered the third industrial revolution, which is what we're going through right now. During Reagan's era, this form of communication was not possible where I can see all your faces, you can see mine. We can talk to each other and record this conversation and post it to the entirety of the internet for you know millions of people to view, right? And during at least in the past two industrial revolutions, although economic data was kind of not a thing back then, there is a noticeable trend in wealth disparity and an increase in like actual wealth inequality, especially during the first industrial revolution, like you said earlier about how capitalism is designed. Like, I think you got to define like, well, I say fair capitalism, which was the first industrial revolution. There was actually like the rich people and the poor people few people in the middle class, but going from the farm to the city actually did hurt their overall standard of living, at least for the first 20 or so years before other market forces came into play before the government stepped up regulation of working standards and such. And so I think that that's also happening right now is the third industrial revolution. We're seeing so many new companies founded and the people who make those companies are benefiting immensely and that Reaganomics came at a wrong time because it only helped them. I can see where you're coming from. And, you know, at the risk of getting into a debate, which I definitely don't want to do because we haven't even started with any of the material that we brought for tonight. <laughs> I think, you know, like I said, going back to just how I tend to work with just concepts rather than minutia and details, I would yeah. like to ask, what do you think of the idea that, because when I've talked to libertarians, they seem to profess this idea that we should all just be able to have less regulation and have this free market so that we could all open up businesses and we could all be entrepreneurs in our own right. And I tend to think of that as more of just what is already happening with things like the gig economy. And the way I see that going is just raising the floor of what is expected of everyone rather than leading to prosperity for everyone. It just makes everyone, forces everyone rather to be insanely productive and then doesn't reward that productivity because it's now just considered the basis of what everyone is doing. So like whether it's moving from the farms to the cities or whether it's the advent of technology, the way I see it now is like, yeah, everyone has access to a computer and can potentially have a podcast where they, you know, put their ideas out and they make some money doing it or something. But really what happens is you get a bunch of girls who now have OnlyFans because it's the only thing they have available to them during a pandemic. You know, I don't know what else you're supposed to do even as a guy because nobody wants to see you get naked usually. Like, <laughs> it seems to me like people are just getting more desperate rather than being able to be entrepreneurs and profitable at whatever thing they're naturally good at because it doesn't seem to work that way. It's just the nature of markets just forces everyone to be more productive, but doesn't really reward it because if everyone is able to do something, it is not valuable anymore. 
Mike, I will pay to watch you get naked right now. Let's do this. I knew you would, bro. I knew you would. I appreciate it. <laughs> In the car. I love so, it. <laughs> so what I have to say for that is I think me personally, I, I mean, I think the FDA should stick around. Like I like the current regulations we have to protect consumers. And I think they're necessary and also to protect the environment. But what I'm against is huge increases in regulations on stuff for like climate change, which is a different subject, but I'm more in favor of incentivization, the change to renewables than regulation. Because that increases compliance costs. And my sense of libertarianism is I just want to lower the barriers to entry as much as possible to someone who wants to become an entrepreneur, someone who has, you know, the next big idea. And I think a lot of this has actually come from Sweden, believe it or not. I mean, my family's Swedish. We've been there, the Sweden and Norway, and we actually have a few very extended family members there. And I've researched the way they structure their economy is it's very market oriented with strong social safety nets. And what I mean by that is your income is taxed highly. And, you know, it's progressive tax, so which people get taxed more. But if you're making like $40,000 a year, you should expect at least 20 to 30% of your income taken by the government. And so what this does is it creates, you know, a relatively happy society where they have like universal health care and stuff. But what they do with part of that money is they invest it in initiatives for people who wish to become an entrepreneur to easily become an entrepreneur. Like you can legally leave your job for, I think it's 180 days and that job will stay there for you. If you are going to create a company that is not in direct competition for the company you work for. Hmm. That's pretty cool. So that has actually resulted in a rate of five times the number of startups per thousand people in Sweden than in the U.S. I think we've said, you know, several times in the podcast that we all kind of think that whatever style of what do you call it, social democracy that Scandinavian countries like Sweden have is probably a good approach and would be much better if the U.S. were to adopt that kind of system. We just tend to think of it as not going far enough. Uh, now, I know, Sterling, you had something and so did you, Jaron. Let me go with you, Sterling, first and then we'll get oh, to Jaron. Oh, God, who the fuck knows? <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> oh, sorry, buddy. I knew I was going to make you wait too long. Sorry about that. I was probably just going to circle back and see if I could at least get a, get you to take a shirt off or something. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> no, I just want to also include in that is like people might question from my statement there, like why I'm a libertarian. It's actually Denmark. I can't say for Norway 100% because they're just different with like their oil economy. But like countries like Denmark, Sweden, Finland, it's actually like they're more libertarian in the sense of how easy it is. It's start a business, own a home, market forces. And it's like free market capitalism with a big social safety net and high taxes. To a degree, but also in the same sense, it's completely not libertarian. I mean, I, though I, I get where you're coming from, it does create the opportunity for entrepreneurship. But let's not confuse entrepreneurship with libertarianism because it, it is not a libertarian yeah. concept to, you know, give someone 180 days off of employment to try to start another business in which they would then go and, and take that uh, service away from your business. You know, even if you're not directly competing, you've still taken resources away. So I, I get I get the concept and I'm feeling like though you're kind of calling yourself a libertarian, you don't mean in the sense that you are far at the bottom of that political. No, compass, I'm though. I probably was just misunderstanding what you said when you said you were a libertarian at the beginning of the podcast, because what I typically think of as libertarians is like Liberty Hangout on Twitter and those fucking. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I just like in terms of libertarianism, you got Republicans and then you got libertarians and I'm like sitting in like roughly in the Metal. Okay, I get what you're saying. Yeah, you, you don't want people to die from drinking, you know, this beer that I have right here. No. But you do want entrepreneurs somewhere in that gray area. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't want like over regulations to increase compliance costs and make it impossible for small businesses to compete with big corporations. Yeah. There's two things that come to mind with that sort of thing, and they do relate to Reagan. Thank you. Thank you. One is that libertarians, for the record, originated, the term libertarian originated in uh, the Civil War in Spain, and they actually referred to the resistance against Francisco Franco, who also conflated with anarchists, which is why I know that. Yep. But aside from that, one thing that you mentioned about Nordic countries and their ability to promote entrepreneurial behavior, which I'm not necessarily a proponent of the free market, I kind of fall into the cracks there. But a huge difference, and this has to do with Reagan, is that that tax revenue that comes from you, that extra tax, which by the way, I'm at 33% bracket, so I pay pretty much what a Nordic country does. None of that goes to small businesses here. None of that goes to any sort of stimulus for the people. It all goes to the military. It all goes to the police state, which, by the way, Reagan increased both of those, you know, exponentially. While cutting social programs. And in doing so, he increased the national debt exponentially. And that's the consistent model here in the U.S. is, yeah, we are taxed the same as Nordic countries. And conceivably, your libertarian ideals could exist here, but they don't because they just take our money and give it to these dickheads every year. Yep. Well, yeah, like that's what I don't like about Reagan specifically is the debt. Like it just kind of irked me how irresponsible he was with spending while cutting taxes. Because it's like, I'm fine with having a big military. That's a different discussion for a number of reasons. But you got to figure out a way to finance it. And you got to get your priorities straight when you collect tax revenue. Did like you can't just the national debt? At least. Yeah. I don't think tripled, but. I think is in the trillions. Or he might have. I can't remember the specifics, but I have something in my writings here about what he did with the debt. And it was not good. Sterling's right on that. To my yeah. knowledge. I think at the end of the day, it's safe to say that the concept of trickle-down economics in a nutshell is if we give this money to these people, it will eventually get to the working class American. I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Just supply-side economics, yeah. Yeah, so, and here's my theory, and feel free to shoot holes in it, but if we want to give money to the average American, how about this? How about we give the fucking money to the average American? Why don't we just give the money to them? I mean, why does it have to go through these goddamn circle jerks? That's what's always blown my fucking mind. I mean, if the end goal is That's too convoluted, no. Right. And, and let me ask you, and this would probably be a good question for Eric here. If we were to say, instead of trickle down, we went with a trickle up and we instead gave those tax breaks or that money directly to the average working class American. I mean, wouldn't they go out and stimulate the market arguably even better than this theory of billionaires buying yachts? In theory, yes, they would. But here's the problem, though. OK, you have to define specifically who is going to be getting the money. A poor person is going to spend their money very differently from a middle-class person. And for the economy as a whole, it'd probably be better giving that money to a you know middle-class family than it would be to a poor person because they don't typically spend money on things that would be beneficial to the economy all the time. So you gave them enough money that they would first rent a home, that money then goes to a landlord. What's the issue at that point? Well, are you talking about like a poor person or to middle-class? Let's say to a poor person who does not even currently have a home. Well, yeah, yeah, you can give them money. Yeah. But there's, you know, a subsect of poor people who might just go and spend that money on drugs or something and feed it all into the 
black market. But what's wrong with doing drugs? <laughs> yeah, rich people do drugs. Wow. <laughs> a lot of things actually. If you follow drugs, not... you always find rich people. I mean, that goes right into your community. Like that's staying right there. Hell yeah, the ultimate free market. I like your, you know, aim towards freedom being an innate right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I follow along with this heavily in the sense of, you know, I'm really into Kant and this innate right to freedom or what have you. Mm-hmm. And I think it is very especially applicable here to talk about the social responsibility of governance to enable people to have this innate right to freedom. And I think this social responsibility is most prevalent or exposable when we talk about extreme poverty. We talk about a regime of ownership and exchange is in a place in society to where, you know, such material consequences are directly considerable. Consider a straightforward case or whatever to where everything's owned collectively. And all of these resources are allocated, collective decision making, what have you, where certain people are allocated, no resources in the virtue of their possessing particular characteristic, right? Since all of these resources are then under control, such people will have no way to make poverty less visible. I guess what I'm getting at here is that uh, a system that has the ability to prevent cases of extreme poverty and chooses to participate and follow through that doesn't prevent this is inhibiting people's right to freedom in itself. This is where it becomes really interesting to me as an anarchist specifically, because, you know, we are placed with this idea of how do we define freedom? And Mm -hmm. I really enjoy that discussion. And I think, again, not to bring it back to Reagan, but I'm going to. Please do, because we got to talk into these factoids at some point. We got to start getting to something (laughs) about Reagan. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is more ideological. It's not a factoid necessarily, but it's something that's definitely worth considering is the idea that is prevalent among much of the American right wing, which does include liberals. Yes. Is there's this idea that rugged individualism is somehow a good thing. And are you free if you do not have that social blanket underneath you to protect you? If you get a horrible, expensive disease like cancer, are you really? free if that is something that is conceivably on the table for you. Because no, you don't have that income that you make, how meager it though it may be. You know, you don't have the freedom to invest that in the arts. You don't have that to invest into the stock market like the rest of the capitalists out there. You don't have the freedom to be a person or even benefit truly off of the meritocracy that we are a part of because we don't have these basic social nets. And that is something that Reagan pushed forth as propaganda to people, that we should be thankful that we don't have these things. We should celebrate our freedom that no one gives a fuck about us. It's perverted. It's really disgusting. And it's yeah, that really is probably the lasting legacy of Reagan that really irks me is that people associate the idea of freedom with getting absolutely nothing in return for your tax money that you are still forking over. Just you get nothing and you can't count on anything from the government. And that's true freedom. You know, it's just being able to fund the military (laughs) and nothing else. So nailed it. All right. If if I can sort of just wrangle everybody, let's try and just get into some of this material so that we can get through some of it because we're already at an hour now and we have not even gotten to the beginning of what we brought tonight. So all right, I'll start with before Reagan. The top tax rate was between 74 and 91%. Reagan dropped it to 28%. This is for obviously the top earners, so, you know, the highest tax bracket. The Fairness Doctrine was a policy of the FCC introduced in 1949 that required the holders of broadcast licenses both to present controversial issues of public importance and to do so in a manner that was, in the commission's view, honest, equitable, and balanced. 
Under Reagan, the FCC eliminated the policy in 1987, and later on, they removed the rule that implemented the policy from the Federal Register. This was in 2011. So I think you can probably tie that change in 2011 to a lot of things that happened in our media since then. Yeah, we could probably do a whole episode on just that, like just the indoctrination machine of Fox and what they've been able to do with you know their media empire. But it actually makes me wonder how much of that was really affected by that decision in 2011, because it seemed like they were well on the way to doing that before then. But yeah, I mean, maybe that could be partly responsible for their major ramp up in the rhetoric. Probably just gas of the fire. Yeah. Uh, So let's see, as far as the Supreme Court, William Rehnquist, first named to the Supreme Court by Richard Nixon, was made chief justice by Ronald Reagan. In the Reagan-Bush years, the Rehnquist Court made a series of decisions that weakened Roe v. Wade, brought back to death penalty, reduced the rights of detainees against police powers, prevented doctors and federally supported family planning clinics from giving women information on abortions, and said that poor people could be forced to pay for public education, that education was, quote, not a fundamental right. That's dark. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like so many of these things, Wait, like just listing them off again? like this. Back that up again. Was that silly? No, just run that sentence back one more time. I was just saying, <laughs> I, I just want to process that one. Can you run that education one back one more time? Poor people could be forced to pay for public education. That education was, quote, not a fundamental right. So I don't know if it ever came to that point, poor people would be forced to pay for education, but just the Mm. fact that he was putting that on the books that it could be done, I'd have to look into that and see if that's something that's still on the books, but I would assume that hasn't changed. So basically what I'm getting out of that is educate people poorly and then punish them for being educated poorly. Yeah. Did I get that right? This is America. Because, I mean, dude, that, that is just so back asswards to me. You know, we got a guy that's talking about how to stimulate the economy top down, and then he fails to recognize a very just simple empirical fact is the better educated people are, the better jobs they can get to work and generate more income. I mean, that is part of why when I think about Reagan and Reaganomics, I just see the whole thing as a flat out fucking lie to everyone's face. You can't possibly be that stupid. Yeah, I mean, so Sterling and I were kind of getting into this before everybody else got here, but I kind of have the theory that Reagan was really just the front man for all of this. Like, it's not an accident that an actor was made the president because he was just put there to put in all these policies and put a good face to it. And when really it was the driving force of, you know, economists like Hayek and Friedman, it's like they came up with this whole idea of having these trickle down economics of just laissez-faire capitalism, just cutting regulation and taxes on the top earners. And then that would just somehow stimulate the economy. And they would just out of the goodness of their hearts, I guess, just raise wages for their employees and invest money back into their businesses. And we've seen that that's not the case. Just this whole idea, it just makes me think that Reagan was really just the front man for all of this and that it was really just some, you know, I don't want to get too conspiratorial about it, but it just, you could definitely convinced me that there was some kind of cabal, I want to say, like, you know, going on in the background that was making all this happen. I don't know. You guys have any opinions on that? I think one thing that I don't agree with that Reagan did is he allowed stock buybacks again in 1982, which I mean, it's like part of me is like as a libertarian company should be able to do this because why would you regulate companies being able to do this? But do you know what stock buybacks do? I think we all have an okay idea, but why don't you just explain for us? Yes. Essentially what it is, is a company takes money they've earned and they repurchase shares of their stock that they have, like outstanding shares. And so the company owns more of their own shares. And what this does is because the stock market is essentially supply and demand. There's a finite amount of shares typically of a company out in circulation on the New York Stock Exchange. 
And if a company does well, people will want to buy that stock because they think it'll reward them. So therefore, the price of the stock goes up when they have a good earnings report. And what stock buybacks do is you uh, lower the amount of supply of the stock, essentially, by buying back the stock and taking it out of circulation and it artificially inflates the price per share of the company. As far as the stock buyback goes, there are a few other things stock buyback does. One, it's also a loophole to get around different regulations on what mm-hmm. you can pay certain people that sit on your board. For instance, your CEO, if there's a you know a certain amount you are allowed to pay your CEO by doing stock buybacks, if your CEO and other people on the board also hold interest in it, you're buying back stock into the company that that interest will then be paid to them. So it's, it's a way to give an even bigger bonus to certain people on the board, including CEOs. And a lot of companies also do this because as a company gets larger, you're, you inevitably mm-hmm. sell more and more of your company off. It kind of, I hate to use the word democracy because it's not, but it inherently gets slightly more democratic as you go when people have more and more voices, though it's not fair if some people have more stocks than others, that kind of is the exact opposite of democracy. But if you can do stock buybacks, that means at a certain point where your company succeeded, you're allowed to now take more power back directly under the board members that would normally you would have to have allegiance from your shareholders. Now you've brought back more power for the company and the board members to use over the shareholders. And in doing so, it then starts turning it in the exact opposite. So if a company is meant to grow and prosper in our country and become more inherently democratic as it goes, then stock buybacks do the exact opposite and allow it to basically become more fascist as it in, in this way. So that's one of the reasons I'm very much against stock buybacks, not only in this sense, but in every sense. Mm-hmm. And then it also channels money away from research and development and employees into just directly rewarding shareholders because I think yeah, less people you have to make happy. Yeah. Well, it still harkens to, again, I think that's part of why the discussion on Reagan is so important is because it really frames a lot of what's going on now in a very realistic light is because stock buybacks, I'm glad we brought it up. You know, during the first multi-trillion dollar stimulus plan that they did back in March, a lot of those went to airline companies, cruise companies, a bunch of big corporations. And what did they do with it? They bought their own stock back. They didn't pass it down to their employees. They didn't give their employees bonuses. So, you know, the fact that you mentioned this, yeah, it's, it's all related and it's all a singular timeline that can be traced back to the Reagan Thatcher era. And the fact that communism fell and the fact that liberal democracy was up on this pedestal and they're like, well, we can do whatever the fuck we want now, basically. You know, I think one of the other interesting points that could be made as that timeline is concerned is in 2008, the global meltdown shook global faith in liberal democracy. And that is directly responsible for why we have this baboon demagogue, Trump, as a viable political option is because it shook everyone's faith in the system that much that enough people were able to look at him and say, oh, this makes sense. (laughs) To me, that is tied back to the Reagan-Thatcher era. It's one (laughs) single thread. Um, I just want to say for the COVID uh, relief for big companies, if you receive COVID relief, you're actually banned from buying back your stocks, I think for 18 months. I, I don't remember. It's it's a year to two years within that range. And from my personal experience, my dad's actually friends with a woman who runs an auto parts business. They manufacture auto parts, but during COVID, you know, all the auto manufacturing got shut down. So they switched to making face shields. 
And on top of that, I think they're less, I think they're about a hundred employees, but they receive PPP money and like they're making money hand over fist. So they just gave all their employees a bunch of bonuses. Well, I got info right here that is showing that companies were allowed to buy back stocks during the first bailout, not the second one that is still pending. But in as far as the one from uh, earlier this year, they were allowed to do that. And then enough people got mad. So now they're not supposed to do that anymore. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of and a lot of people that got those PPP loans ended up spending it on like houses or a new truck, shit like that, too. Hell yeah, brother. I'm absolutely. That's actually why part of the reason why um, I don't know if you guys uh, heard about this, but the used car market was like totally car prices were insanely high. Yeah, um, really. From like June, July, August. So many people had money from PPP, I think. I actually did hear that. And my father-in-law was unfortunate enough to buy a truck at that time. And (laughs) he was surprised how much he had to pay for a used pickup truck. truck. I actually wanted to say, I'm glad you brought up airlines, Jaron, because one of the things I have down here is that one of the first acts of the Reagan administration was to dismiss from their jobs en masse striking air traffic controllers. It was a warning to future strikers and a sign of the weakness of the labor movement, which in the 30s and 40s had been such a powerful force. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, just somewhat related. Um, I'll go on here if we can continue on with my little list here. Try to somewhat stay on topic for the night. Uh, Evidence became stronger by the late 80s that renewable energy sources, water, wind, and solar could produce more usable energy than nuclear plants, which were dangerous and expensive and produced radioactive waste that could not be safely disposed of. Yet the Reagan and Bush administrations both made deep cuts under Reagan a 90% cut in research into renewable energy possibilities. Didn't that dick take off the uh, solar panels that Jimmy yes, Carter put on did. the roof of the White House, too? I forgot. That's for really? an asshole. Yeah, he did. Yeah. For no reason. Fuck I these things. Fuck Jimmy Carter. Uh, <laughs> one of this hippie bullshit. Literally. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, that literally is like, yeah, that just helps you. Like, you're literally just throwing money up down the drain. Like. Trick, trickle down, <laughs> baby. Oh, my God. Okay, so. Here's another thing related to the White House then. Shortly after Ronald Reagan took office, 23 oil industry executives contributed $270,000 to redecorate the White House living quarters, according to the Associated Press. The solicitation drive came four weeks after the president decontrolled oil prices, a decision worth $2 billion to the oil industry. Jack Hodges of Oklahoma City, owner of Core Oil and Gas Company, said, quote, the top man of this country ought to live in one of the top places. (laughs) Mr. Reagan has helped the energy business. It's like saying the quiet part out loud. (laughs) Yeah, dude, there's no like, there's definitely no, it's not even a backdoor deal. It's a, it's a right out on the front lawn deal. Like it's literally saying wink, wink instead of like actually thinking. <laughs> he, he helped us and we should reward him, right? <laughs> it's not a bribe. I'm just doing it right out and open. Yeah, where were all the people screaming quid pro quo back then? Oh my Jesus God. Christ. You're just raising air quotes in your hands. Yeah. <laughs> This is totally not corrupt. I mean, I gotta say, that makes me feel a little, like, less surprised about Trump, kind of like you were saying, Jaron. It's like, it really was leading right to this, because that's the kind of thing everyone says about Trump, is that he's unique in that he says all the quiet parts loud, is that he's not even bothering well the decorum of previous presidents, where they at least will put up the show of freedom and democracy rhetoric when they go bomb a country. But it's like, no, they were always doing it this way. It's, they were always like this. Trump did, in fact, steal Reagan's original campaign slogan, which was Make America Great Again. He stole a lot of the... Wow, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. That was Reagan's, yeah. A lot of the basic energy. Yeah. 
I know it's like a subjective terminology, but what I mean by that is like borrowing from the mythos that is Reagan trying to embody himself and embolden uh, his actions in that of being like, oh, look, I'm a product of trickle down economics that works, whatever, when really you're a shining exemplification of it doesn't work because you never had to do any actual labor in your life. The only thing that you did was inherit some money. You've bankrupt multiple companies and so on. And now because we live in an economic system that you have to say is meritocracy, you know? You have to be able to justify the fact that you're smart because you have money and you're on top or something of that nature. It has to be the case. Otherwise, it breaks the entire fundamental framework of the system. There are people like the, uh, you know, the cult of MAGA that still believe in these things. But I guess what I'm getting at here about how this is in relation to uh, Reaganism being related to Trump is this core identity of what I like to call, at least in analysis, the myth. You have this external surplus value that comes along with somebody. Similarly to how when you look at Reagan, you're not just looking at trickle-down economics. You're not just talking about some actor white dude from California or the doubling down of the war on drugs. You're talking about an amalgamation of a multitude of different things. <laughs> just to tie into the Make America Great Again thing, just because Cosper brought that up, that was actually a slogan for Reagan. And under the Trump administration, you know, we know that it's basically just a blanket quote that really means nothing. But under the Reagan administration, it actually did mean something. And our listeners may care to know what Make America Great again actually meant under Reagan. Uh, the first thing it meant was a ban on abortion Oof. because he was extremely, you know, theocratic in the sense that basically whatever the Oof. church said was how our country should be run and they were very, you know, anti-abortion. That was part of Make America Great Again. The next part was he wanted to uh, gut Social Security because he felt that was a free handout. Jesus. And ba basically it was very, he was very anti-FDR. That was another core component of Make America great again and god what was the last there was a third part of it that was very important too it was oh it was just freedom of religion just back to that he he felt that every school should have to teach uh, a religious class and basically the the teachings of Jesus Christ should be included in public schooling and that's what make America great again actually Oof. meant under Reagan but go ahead Jared so he actually had specific policy goals in mind when he said it yeah go ahead Jared yes uh, well, again, I'm really glad Sterling actually said that before I said what I was going to say here, and I'll keep it as concise as possible. But there's this wonderful book by a guy named Chris Lehman called Money Cult, and it's about the ties between Christianity, capital, and public perception. And essentially what Lehman puts forth is, you know, after King Henry VIII's break from the Catholic Church, he administered this idea that you can have a personal relationship with God, and if your personal relationship with God is good, you will be rewarded with wealth. That was transferred into the Puritan colonies in the United States. And one of the things that we've seen that has occurred in the U.S. since then, even though we're not technically a theocracy, we all know that we actually are. Yeah. The idea that wealth is always deserved is something that has persisted beyond the belief in God. You can be a huge Dawkins atheist and still imagine that Jeff Bezos deserves every dollar that he has. <laughs> <laughs> and the same thing kind of came forth with Reaganomics, where they're saying, well, okay, if we give the rich guys money, they're good because they're rich guys. They definitely have to be good because they're rich guys. So they'll give it to other people, right? And then we see it again with Trump, where it's like, oh, well, he's probably good because he's got all this money. And the way that it is tied together, the American religion, though it is Christianity, is more so it is capital. And that's part of why especially I'm going to just go ham on this. 
liberals especially, even though they disavow Christianity, will get on their knees for capital. And that's part of the reason that they are not effective and part of the reason that we see everything turning to the right, even though they think they're the opposition. No, I mean, that really explains a lot. Like when you say that, I'm going to have to check out that book because, I mean, that explains so much about American culture over the last few decades and just how our American ideology is itself a religion. And it has no basis in fact or any kind of returns that people are actually seeing for subscribing to that religion, but they believe in it anyway, and they will devote their entire lives to it wholeheartedly. That actually ties into something that I have later on. If if I do get to it, I don't know how much of this material I'm actually going to get through tonight, seeing how slow paced we're getting through it all. But I'm loving it. There is a huge portion that I have dedicated to this idea that Democrats and liberals especially are actually the big enablers of Reaganomics and the ideology that he left us with. But let me just continue. So while he built up the military allocations of over a trillion dollars in his first four years in office, Reagan tried to pay for this with cuts in benefits for the poor. There would be $140 billion in cuts in social programs through 1984 and an increase of $181 billion for, quote, defense in the same period. He also proposed tax cuts of $190 billion, most of this going to the wealthy. So despite the tax cuts and the military appropriations, Reagan insisted he would still balance the budget because the tax cuts would so stimulate the economy as to generate new revenue. (laughs) Nobel Prize winning economist Wassily Leontief remarked dryly, quote, this is not likely to happen. In fact, I personally guarantee that it will not happen. Yeah. End quote. Spoiler, he was right. Yeah. <laughs> he puts like a lie on that. Jesus Christ. Yeah, we should look him up and see if he's still alive. We like, just give him a medal. Like, yeah, dude, you got it. I'm going to send you 10 bucks. <laughs> Indeed, Department of Commerce figures showed that periods of lowered corporate taxes, 1973 to 1975 and 1979 to 1982, did not at all show higher capital investment, but a steep drop. The sharpest rise of capital investment, 1975 to 1979, took place when corporate taxes were slightly higher than they had been the preceding five years. The human consequences of Reagan's budget cuts went deep. For instance, Social Security disability benefits were terminated for 350,000 people. A man injured in an oil field accident was forced to go back to work. The federal government overruling both the company doctor and the state supervisor who testified that he was too disabled to work. The man died and federal officials said, quote, we have a PR problem. Can you imagine that shit, dude? Like, it's terrible. I mean, like, how is that your statement? <laughs> fucking hell. I love it. Uh, to go on a little further, the war hero of Vietnam, Roy Benavidez, who had been presented with the Congressional Medal of Honor by Reagan, was told by Social Security officials that the shrapnel pieces in his heart, arms, and leg did not prevent him from working. Appearing before Congressional <laughs> Committee, he denounced Reagan. I wonder why. <laughs> I think Cosper had some. To touch on what you were saying, Jerem, was this like precise analysis that I agree with, at least uh, we see the development come from this, you know, how do these things draw the legitimacy of their power? You know, you look at something like feudalism, we see a divine right for kings. Those in power have been innately ordained this right from God, what have you, you can't challenge it. In the form of capitalism, we've seen this take the shape of meritocracy. For those on top to be justified within this power that they have, they have had to have worked for it. This is why you have people, you know, they jerk off, they, they blow people like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, what have you. When in reality, <laughs> the majority, more than half, what have you, always, always, always involved with luck. Yes. And I think that, you know, I'm a living example of this. There are many millions of more people who are more qualified to be talking on this podcast and myself right now, but like I ended up here. How do these people really get there? I mean, even if you ask someone like Bezos, you look at the the work that he does a day. He he wakes up at I think like eight o'clock. He does three meetings and he's out. He's done for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does more than that. He he makes his his ideas three big decisions of the day. 
That's what I'm getting at. Yes. Yeah. I understand where you're coming from with that opportunity or what we call opportunity is essentially right. the combination of luck the, and prepared. The opportunity like, of luck. And I think that, I mean, I, so I read this book called the third door, very interesting about this guy. He basically it's like college student. He's just investigating how super successful people in their industries got their big break. So like how Lady Gaga, Steven Spielberg, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, how did they start their careers? And he interviewed this one guy from Microsoft who was born in China. I forget what his official position was, but he was like, not like an executive, like not a C-suite member, but um, he's an executive and he's talking about how it was completely random and completely lucky how his friend basically told him that, hey, you should come to like this show and this guy's talking from America and it was like pouring rain and he didn't want to go, but he decided to show up and he ended up getting his fees to actually take tests to then try and get into school in America waived. And that's basically how he got into a good college in America because his salary was incredibly low. He would not have been able to make the money to actually take the test. But he pointed out something is like, it's not just completely about luck. It's about how prepared you are as a person for what you're trying to do like he said opportunities like a is like a irregular bus stop like you never know when it's going to come back but at some point there will be another opportunity but you have to be prepared to take it and i feel like a lot of people today who aren't necessarily destitute but aren't doing so well just aren't prepared to take and seize an opportunity when they see it what you got jaron well, I think, again, I'm, I'm going to keep trying to tie this back to Reagan because I, I think Thank that you. all of this, that Thank absolutely you. relates. Yeah. So, and this, this is uh, regarding your point. If capitalism is this fair and equitable system that it is claimed to be, then we look at something like, well, <laughs> Thank you. Fair. I didn't mean to put words <laughs> in your mouth for the record. Um, but, but to be fair, so let's look at just one instance during the Reagan administration, right? The Iran-Contra affair. So at the same time, the guy is supplying weapons to Iraq. He's selling weapons to Iran, which is a very capitalist thing to do because he's making money on both fronts. Hell right? Yeah. And I'm excluding the Nicaraguan Contras from this because we're not even going to do that right now. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we gotta- if, <laughs> if this idea of luck and preparedness is something that can manifest success, how does that affect someone who lived in that firing line, the Kurds or any of the Iraqi Bedouin or any of the Persian people who in all respects want the same things that the average American does, health and prosperity and professional success. They could be as prepared as possible, but in the 1980s, that wouldn't stop them from getting fucking bombed by American bombs, (laughs) no matter which side of the board they're on. So, you know, we can talk and talk and talk about equality insofar as the American spectrum. But to me, this is part of why I identify the way that I do. This is all propped up on the backs of the third world as it has been forever. I agree. And Reagan was such a formative part of that. This guy managed to take the entire world, more or less, and put it underneath his thumb. And then we see these big economic gains in the 90s as if it was just American hard work that made those. Fucking no. It was free trade on the backs of everyone that Reagan stomped on. I think your view of, I mean, capitalism and what Reagan did to an extent to the third world is a bit cynical in a sense, because yeah, I I mean, a lot of companies use labor, cheap labor from third world countries. But in that process, we've brought billions of people out of absolute poverty to achieve better lives. And the thing is, is we're not in a society that is post resource scarcity. And, you know, we can't just immediately like, or even like the next 10 years, just give people a decent living. We just don't have the resources, the technical know-how for that yet. I mean, I disagree, but... (laughs) I get, I get what you're saying. 
again, I really don't want to get us into a debate territory because we're trying to do like a historical episode, but like the general idea and kind of where I, how I got to the point where I am at now politically is that looking into that idea that we are lifting people out of poverty by having these (laughs) entrepreneurs. What I've found is that most of the time when you think that we have lifted people out of poverty, it's really just a matter of adjusting the metrics. And what we've really done is change the idea of what poverty is and different organizations like the IMF or the UN or whatever will say that now a dollar a day is not poverty anymore, whereas it used to be. And they'll, they'll adjust the figures to say that people in the global South are not living in as much poverty as they actually still are, but at least we feel better about it. And sorry, mm-hmm. what you had there, Casper? I was going to say, you know, we talk about poverty, but I think that the another thing to question here is, is this poverty it being idealistic here? Is it being abolished without the coercion or, you know, stomping on the freedom of the individuals creating the labor itself? Like we were talking about, this independence, this freedom comes on independence from being constrained by another's choice. And if another country is basically controlling the workforce or what have you, obviously you have this idea of consent within capitalism. But if you're not allowing people to make their choices freely, like, oh, you'll starve otherwise, this is coercion. So we have to recognize the fact that this freedom is non-existent within that scenario. I was just going to say, you know, regarding that book that you were talking about, Eric, I can't remember the title mm-hmm. of the moment, but it also reminds yeah, the me third of, door. thank you. It reminds me of that Malcolm Gladwell book, The Tipping Point. And I think it was a similar idea where he wrote about a lot of like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and other big time entrepreneurs like that. And he basically just outlines all the circumstances that allowed them to get to the point that they were at and talked about the incredibly lucky circumstances that they had. Just a lot of different coincidences that allowed them to get where they were. And I think that's another thing that I think we as leftists, you know, don't subscribe to the great man theory of history, which is why I, I say it a lot. But as much as we circle jerk about Stalin and Mao and all those kind of guys, like we don't revere them as God. And we don't think of them as the most unique individuals that could have only been the ones that did what they did at that time, but more as just circumstances of history who were in the right place at the right time. And in the same way, like, I don't think of these entrepreneurs as people who, you know, were just circumstances of not only luck, but then the ability to take advantage of that luck, but their wealth was produced by millions of people working below them. You know, like they could have had all the opportunities and also been talented and charismatic and had the good sense to take advantage of those opportunities when they presented themselves. But if they still didn't have all those people below them to produce that wealth, they would be absolutely nothing. And I think that really just needs to be acknowledged. So we can revere these guys and we can recognize their accomplishments and we can even pay them really well. We can make them millionaires or billionaires if we need, but they still need to pay their fair share and they need to acknowledge the systems that are in place that allow them to do that. And I think that's where it gets back to sort of the Scandinavian model, maybe of social Mm -hmm. democracy, where if they just were paying their fair share of taxes, it would do a lot more to recognize the, even things like infrastructure, like roads that allow their workers to get to their place of business to make them that money, which right now they are not doing because that is mostly being subsidized by the lower classes who are paying the majority of the tax. So in economics, there's four resources, land, which is like physical land, men with resources and such. Then you have labor, which is people, capital, which is like machinery and such. And then you have entrepreneurship, which is like the person who organizes the rest. And I understand your point of what you're saying. And I think it's important to understand that you can't create economic growth without all four. All four have to work in combination. And so I think from either a left or right standpoint, you can't overstress the importance of one over the other because they all four need each other to work. Yeah, I just wanted to circle back on the whole poverty and third world country thing. So just for a little bit of data on this, let's take Afghanistan for an example. So it's estimated that Afghanistan has 3.8 billion barrels of oil reserve between the the main Balka and Jazan province. A large 444 billion cubic meters in natural gas. But let's just take the barrels of oil, for example, 3.8 billion. 3.8 billion times an average at 
at $68 per barrel, basically comes out to over $250 billion. Um, there are 37 million people in Afghanistan. Uh, so to think of Afghanistan with having 37 million people and a resource that is worth a quarter of a trillion dollars that they are living in a third world country tells you everything you need to know about American intervention. Afghanistan is not a third world country. They're forced into being a third world country. Go ahead. Correct. Again, that's something that, well, Carter actually started it, but Reagan kind of put the nail in the coffin. And this is a really interesting part of geopolitics insofar as, as America is concerned is we tend to find the craziest, most fundamental nationalists we possibly can respective to that area of the world and give them guns <laughs> with the understanding that once they're in power, they're going to hand that shit over to us. How's that work out? <laughs> well, it always backfires. There's there's about 20 yep. years where it's chill. And then after that, it gets really horrible. Um, <laughs> you know, and they've done this multiple times in the Middle East, a ton in Latin America, a ton in Africa under AFRICOM. But as far as the Taliban is concerned, you know, this started under Carter and then Reagan kind of put the nail in the coffin, even calling the Taliban, if I get the quote right, the founding fathers of Afghanistan. Yes, which is completely insane. And then, you know, fast forward 30 years and we're at war with these people in the mountains. And I think there is a meme about this, actually, where it's like we're dropping a bomb that costs five hundred thousand dollars on a guy that makes fucking five dollars a year uh, who lives in a tent that costs. I don't fucking know. But you see where I'm going with this. Well, I mean, um, if we're talking about the deal, just, you think of the uh, America ball, where it's like when you fund a terrorist group to fight a terrorist group that you funded to fight a terrorist group. To <laughs> <laughs> we should do an episode on quote unquote terrorism sometime. Tell me about it, dude. <laughs> All right, let me get back into a couple more blurbs here and then we can mm. continue. Unemployment grew in the Reagan years. In the year 1982, 30 million people were unemployed all or part of the year. One result was that over 16 million Americans lost medical insurance, which was often tied to holding a job. In Michigan, where the unemployment rate was the highest in the country, the infant death rate began to rise in 1981. New requirements eliminated free school lunches for more than a million poor children who depended on the meal for as much as half of their daily nutrition. Millions of children entered the ranks of the officially declared poor, and soon a quarter of the nation's children, 12 million, were living in poverty. In parts of Detroit, one-third of the children were dying before their first birthday. And the New York Times commented, quote, Given what's happening to the hungry in America, this administration has cause only for shame, end quote. To continue, Welfare became the object of attack. Aid to single mothers with children through the AFDC, Aid to Families with Dependent Children Program, food stamps, health care for the poor through Medicaid. For most people on welfare, the benefits differ from state to state. This meant $500 to $700 a month in aid, leaving them well below the poverty level of about $900 a month. Black children were four times as likely as white children to grow up on welfare. Just in terms of uh, along racial lines, something that also occurred under Reagan is the incarceration of more and more people of color, specifically black people. But this coincided with ramping up the drug war to an absolutely insane extent, which again, relating to modern events, one of the big things that he put forth wasn't just the private prison complex and the just enlargement of the police state, as it were, but also SWAT teams, which in a lot of places you have to to have a SWAT team to serve certain warrants. That is a law. And that is part of why we see people like Breonna Taylor getting shot in her sleep is because of something that Reagan did. No, I didn't know that. And I actually left out of all of my material that I brought to the table tonight was, it was a pretty well-known quote, and that's why I just didn't even bother to include it. I figured someone else would mention it. I, I believe it was Reagan saying that they intentionally started the war on drugs because they wanted to target minorities and leftists, and they knew they couldn't target them directly. 
but they knew that they would be more likely to use illicit substances. And then if they just targeted those substances, it would achieve the same effect. Well, they got me there, I guess. And <laughs> <laughs> all of us, brother. Yeah, sure. You. <laughs> all right. So I have a, an anecdote here that's actually particularly uh, horrific. So early in the Reagan administration, responding to the argument that government aid was not needed, that private enterprise would take care of poverty, a mother wrote to her local newspaper, quote, I am on aid to families with dependent children, and both my children are in school. I have graduated from college with distinction, 128th in a class of over 1,000, with a BA in English and sociology. I have experience in library work, child care, social work, and counseling. I have been to the CETA office. They have nothing for me. I also go every week to the library to scour the newspaper help wanted ads. I have kept a copy of every cover letter that I have sent out with my resume. The stack is inches thick. I have applied for jobs paying as little as $8,000 a year. I work part-time in a library for $3.50 an hour. Welfare reduces my allotment to compensate. It appears we have employment offices that can't employ, governments that can't govern, and an economic system that can't produce jobs for people ready to work. Last week, I sold my bed to pay for the insurance on my car, which, in absence of the mass transportation, I need to go to job hunting. I sleep on a piece of rubber foam somebody gave me. So this is the great American dream my parents came to this country for. Work hard, get a good education, follow the rules, and you will be rich. I don't want to be rich. I just want to be able to feed my children and live with some semblance of dignity. What year was this written in? That was, um, it actually doesn't say. It just has to be sometime in Reagan's administration. I don't have the exact year for that. Okay. Because I think it's important to distinguish uh, recession years versus expansion years because obviously capitalism with its intended role works much better in expansion years than it does in recession years. And the 1985 recession was pretty bad. I mean, that's a good caveat. Yeah, I would say that's a, a fair point to bring up. Sorry, what would you have, Casper? I was just going to say to think about not only this situation that this woman's going through, but also the fact that these were the exact type of people that Reagan was blaming the economy on, was the welfare queens, if you would, mm-hmm. of saying it's precisely people like this that is keeping the economy from reaching the full stride at which it would, which latter went on to inspire uh, the UK through people like Thatcher to say it's signal mothers instead of welfare queens that are prohibiting the economy's growth. I think that this is very important to point out. Yeah, I mean, the only response I would have to that is the idea should be that we try to strive for a system that doesn't have recession, doesn't have these kind of cycles of booms and busts and in the busts where people who are the working people who really drive the economy and create all the wealth are just left to hang while the very wealthiest use that as sort of a Black Friday sale to be able to buy up whatever resources and businesses and materials that they want. What would you have there, John? It's just building on your point. I mean, I, I think that, and this kind of plays into what you're saying about Reagan being planned or whatever. I have no evidence of that, but I will say that I think that boom bust is not coincidental. I think that it's something that's very much by design. And I think that a a great case for that would be 2008, where we do have these people extending subprime loans. We do have these people selling derivative assets. They know exactly how toxic they are. They know exactly how insolvent they are. And they Mm -hmm. continue to do it over and over and over because they know they bail out from government and the whole thing collapses and walk away with their commission. They know that it doesn't work. These people aren't stupid. They know what they're doing. And they tank the economy and take commissions and buy assets back when they're cheap while everyone else suffers. In my opinion, this is all completely by design. I don't think that either regulation or deregulation can solve it because the problem with both of them is that we are letting private companies issue what to regulate and what to deregulate. The problem is private influence, not how we deal with it economically. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. That's one thing I hated about the 08 bailouts is it's established 
precedent that banks can privatize the gains and socialize the losses. That's not free market capitalism. <laughs> that's corporatism. That's crony capitalism. That only benefits wealthy people. It doesn't benefit anybody. Not else, real which... capitalism, bro. It's not. No, I no, mean, I'm I'm fucking with you, but I mean, yeah, it really yeah. is the case. The people who espouse capitalism would say that that is not real capitalism. It just sounds like the no true Scotsman thing to me. You know, I don't like that. It just can then and then you had create problems where people start realizing that they're being screwed over and it creates all sorts of social issues. It would be easier for the economic system to continue to have the blindfold on where people don't realize they're getting fucked in the ass and so on. Ignorance is bliss. Precisely. Yes, this is this is the uh, the function of ideology within the current framework of the system is to, to make you uh, to have you manufacture this idea of consent. Yeah. And let's not paint getting fucked in the ass as such a negative thing. Like getting yeah, fucked bro, in the ass is, is great. Like non-consensually non fucked without in the ass. Non-consensually fucked in the ass. Yeah, just real quick, I will say like the problem I have when people say that, you know, the whole no true capitalism thing is that when I see the right or libertarians or whoever, you know, all the capitalists, when I see them fight against bailouts for banks and businesses as hard as they fight against welfare for anyone else, then I will believe them. But until that day, I don't believe them. I feel like they are just against the poor and for the rich because that's just what I've seen in my own life. I've just seen the way that they get so outraged that if you do anything that will actually help the working class directly, any kind of bailout that would help working people in in their own class, which is really what blows my mind about it, that would actually help them directly, would put money directly in their pockets. They will fight that tooth and nail. They will march in the streets. They will get their AR-15s out and they will be out there. But if you try to bail out like businesses or like you bail out Boeing, they're like, oh, it's not real capitalism, but I'll let it slide. Sorry, would you have Cosper? I will warn before I get into this, this is a rather long rant, but I just, I have something to say about this. I think that more frequently in relation to this, we have society's responsibility for extreme poverty in this example becomes less visible. For example, we might institute a regime of ownership or exchange where it's possible, but not necessary that certain people will lack access to basic resources, right? In such case, we identify or allow another mechanism such as the market to identify particular characteristics and patterns of behavior where people who have these characteristics or behaviors are that act in these ways lack access to basic resources. While there need not be people who possess these characteristics or engage in these behaviors, if they are, they will lack access to the basic resources. In such cases, it's easy to focus instead on the choices of these individuals, which is my tying point of this back to Reagan being this extreme utmost focus on the individual instead of the societal impact. You know, there's this talk about pull yourself up by the boot straps and bullshit like that. Well, if you can't reach your boot based on the systematic structure around you, there's nothing to pull up. So we focus instead on these individual characteristics instead of focusing in on the system that is denying them access to these basic resources in itself. Because we must remind ourselves that we, in these cases, constantly choose to reinforce these systems, these uh, regimes that enable these disadvantages and inequalities when there need not be so. It's not ever just this one choice that's made with the conception with the founding fathers. It's a daily consensual reoccurrence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I'm probably just reiterating what you said, hopefully in layman's terms, just because I'm just going to, that's, I think that's my role here on the podcast is just dumb down what Cosper says. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> Tying back to the, uh, the 2008 recession, it's not, a new economic concept to vet the people that you're giving a loan to if you're going to lend them money for a home. 
If you don't look into the financial history of somebody and you give them a loan anyway, that's called an irresponsible loan. It's not a new thing. It's just a basic economics 101 term that, you know, I'm sure Adam Smith has something about it. <laughs> it's, it's really not a new concept at all. But we have the system where we expect banks to not do the very minimum of what they're supposed to do as far as what is their responsibility. But then we also expect people like working people and consumers to be able to analyze macroeconomic trends and decide 18 years old what they're going to go to school for yeah. based on what they think is going to be in demand in another four or six years when they get out of school and then hinge their survival based on that. Just on its face, that makes no fucking sense. Like you don't expect bankers to be able to give out responsible loans, but you expect college kids to be able to pick a career six years in advance. Like, go fuck yourself if you think that's a justifiable system and a way to run a country, let alone a world. Not only that, but making someone pay in order to be used is also inherently laughable, I think, in my opinion. Yeah. 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 Now, we, me and Cosper were talking about this the other day. The idea that going to college to train to serve an industry not only, not only is free but we pay for it like you should be paid to train for this industry especially things like yeah. like lawyers and doctors and scientists and things that this country literally cannot exist without like imagine if everyone was just like nah that's too expensive let's we're just not gonna have scientists anymore like where we would fucking be and Mike you had talked about this one day you know that quote about how many doctors have we lost to the battlefield because they couldn't fucking afford the college Mm -hmm. yeah well i think that that's a really strong case for what exactly constitutes economic upward mobility is if we look at the failed fascist states in europe if we look at italy or germany specifically we sort of see this need to look elsewhere for resources and to look elsewhere for these things to help our economy grow and that is a sense of a fascist economy, which is what the United States have. We would rather spend Correct. money on war to pillage things and bring them back here and sell them for a profit than to do what Sterling is saying and to invest in people to create a career. You know, subsidizing college is not the priority. The priority is continuing the war in Afghanistan, which seeds all the way back to the Reagan and Carter's administration. I do think that that's indicative of these right-wing politics is they have to be expansionary. They have to keep consuming beyond national borders at all times. Mm -hmm. Would you have there, Eric? You brought up an interesting point about the military. And I think me personally, a lot of what has to do with military spending is the U.S. has kind of been given the role as the world. I mean, I police kind of has a negative connotation, but wherever U.S. troops show up, not There's given the role, taking the role. Never yeah. get it. That's, that's the, that's the comment I would, yeah. It's, okay, it's I mean, but the force. point is nobody else wants to take it now, except for maybe China. But I think China would probably do it. If so, they would, China but I wouldn't want that to happen. And <laughs> I would. Oh, we is, love China here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll take China. I defend Deng all day. Oh, yeah. Deng was actually very smart given his position, but different topic. I think, you know, the U.S. military plays a huge part in keeping overall stability within the world. Like, it's no coincidence that there hasn't been a major war such as World War II since, you know, World War II. And I think creating stability within third world countries provides them opportunities to advance themselves up from the bottom because businesses like stability. And if there's stability, businesses will invest and that provides people with better standards of living. I'd hardly call mutually assured destruction as like... <laughs> stability. <laughs> stability. Well, I'm yeah. talking about more like American troops and bases and 
such. Well, in that case, we can look to Yemen. But go on, Jaron. I mean, I was basically going to make the same point as if we do a case study looking at Syria. Uh, and I'm, I'm no apologist for Bashar al-Assad. Don't get me wrong. I think that Alawites have been in control of Syria <laughs> exclusively a little bit too long. But, you know, if we're talking about stability as a result of U.S. occupation, first off, like I said earlier, we arm the craziest fucking people we can find because they'll actually sell their allegiance to us temporarily. So that's what Barack Obama, the new Ronald Reagan, did. And I know that I just got rid of yes. our last liberal listener because of that statement. <laughs> Good. But, <laughs> fuck them. Um, <laughs> We don't need you. You know, the reality is, you know, the average day in Syria was better before we armed those crazy motherfuckers, realized how crazy they were as if we didn't know before, and then send our own <laughs> troops over there. And then Russia's like, oh, shit, one of our only naval ports that we use is in Tartus. And then they send their troops in. I mean, there is a strong case to be argued that U.S. occupation makes things empirically worse pretty much every time it happens. Yes, yes. Yeah. Based. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's a controversial point Based. here. Maybe everywhere else it would be, but... I mean, I, that's kind of the point one of my more liberal cousins brought up is that he would decrease military spending a little bit, but also, in his opinion, you know, American troops do provide a degree of stability across the world. I mean, let me just suggest this, because we do say things like, you know, if we pulled our troops out of Afghanistan, then Russia would just go and invade them. Then why the fuck do we not only provide protection and say, hey, if you go in and invade Afghanistan, you've broken a war pact, and now we basically have a war with uh, with Russia. Isn't that supposed to be what organizations like NATO are for, so that you just exactly. avoid situations like that? Let's, let's make NATO yeah. stronger, let's make the UN stronger, and let's actually protect these countries, because what the fuck is the difference to Afghanistan who their fucking daddy is if they don't even get their own fucking resources? Well, the problem with the U.S. is Russia and China on the Security Council would never agree to making, you know, a more pro-Western military them. force stronger. Or fuck us. <laughs> All right, let's try and get it back on topic. Um, so now I'm going to get into the segment I have where talking about how Democrats have enabled or worse than enabled, just actively helped this sort of Reagan ideology. And let's keep in mind, Reagan was a quote unquote Democrat. Like his career started as what he considered himself a Democrat. He was part of the Democrat Party and and then he's famous for that quote that I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. Uh, he pulled the Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that, and then that he became a, a Republican when he ran for president. But he was a Democrat when he was uh, a governor, right? Or was he a Republican by the time he won the governor? It sounds like Reagan was hashtag walk away before it was cool. <laughs> right. So at the time, Democrats often joined Republicans in denouncing welfare programs. Presumably, this was done to gain political support from a middle class public that believed they were paying taxes to support teenage mothers and people they thought too lazy to work. Much of the public did not know and were not informed by either political leaders or the media that welfare took a tiny part of the taxes and military spending took a huge chunk of it. Yet the public's attitude on welfare was different from that of the two major parties. It seemed that the constant attacks on welfare by politicians reported endlessly in the press and on television did not succeed in eradicating a fundamental generosity felt by most Americans. A New York Times and CBS News poll conducted in early 1992 showed that public opinion on welfare changed depending on how the question was worded. If the word welfare was used, 44% of those questions said too much was being spent on welfare, while 50% said either that the right amount was being spent or that too little was being spent. But when the question was about assistance to the poor, only 13% thought too much was being spent, and 64% thought too little was. This suggested that both parties were trying to manufacture an anti-human needs mood by constant derogatory use of the word welfare, and then to claim they were acting in response to public opinion. Democrats, as well as the Republicans, had strong connections to wealthy corporations. Kevin Phillips, a Republican analyst of national politics, 
wrote in 1990 that the Democratic Party was history's second most enthusiastic capitalist party. Phillips pointed out that the greatest beneficiaries of government policy during the Republican presidencies of Ronald Reagan and George Bush were the super rich. It was the truly wealthy more than anyone else who flourished under Reagan. I think in terms of welfare, like my big problem with it is you're not vetting people significantly. Like obviously there are a decent number of people who truly need it. But you know, then at the same time, it's like I go and volunteer and I see people who just don't have their priorities straight with how they should be spending their time and spending the money that they have, that they have left over. You have welfare, like food stamps replaces the need to actually buy food. You should try and be spending that money on something productive to try and get yourself out of the situation. And I see a decent portion of people who don't do that. And on the same token, I see a decent portion of people who are using the services provided by the volunteer organization I work with to actually try and improve themselves and get a job and work their way up. My problem with welfare is, you know, the vetting process for who truly needs it and should get it versus who's just going to waste it. I don't think anyone really wastes access to food, though. I mean, that's just an example. But like cash assistance is more what I'm talking about. Ward, what did you have? I'm totally willing to have there be like a handful of people that scam the system in order with my tax (laughs) money. Absolutely. We get scammed way worse. In order for like a single mother with like four kids to be able to put food on on their kids' plates, you know? Well said. I'm totally okay with that. I don't care. Again, this is part of what kind of constitutes why I would consider myself an anarchist is I believe that people in general have kind of a default humanity to them. And the default human condition is one that wants to work wants to be creative, wants to do Mm. good things for themselves and for other people. So, you know, even there is a small percentage of folks who don't fit that normative. My question for someone who is, quote, scamming welfare is how did society fail them in the first place that they didn't want to do these things for themselves, that they didn't want to do these things for others? It doesn't point to the individual as a problem to me. It points to the society as a problem for me. Completely agree. And I mean, that, that's the same standpoint for us on the communist side as well. We definitely line up there. And yeah, then that's the nature versus nurture argument versus is it the system that failed them or is the person just inherently bad? I mean, as with argument. everything, it's a little bit of both. But I think that generally the human condition probably to, you know, there's no data to back this up. I'm just spitballing after <laughs> a few beers. But, you know, 95 percent of humans want to do something constructive and good with their lives, assuming that all social needs are met. It's when social needs are not met that we start to have these antisocial tendencies of being despondent or lazy or even worse than that, quote unquote, criminal. My point is, even if they are a bad person, even if they are a piece of shit, even if they don't want to work, I I still think they should have a a place to live and access to Mm -hmm. food. I don't think anyone, no matter their decisions or who they are as a person, just deserves to live on the street underneath the rain. I mean, we give criminals who rape, murder, you name it, access to lodging and, uh, you know, three meals a day. So why on earth would we ever consider people living out here any differently than our worst? Mm -hmm. And uh, Jaren, just to your point about human nature, I think it's important to keep in mind that to a certain degree, humans are inherently lazy. That's why we invent technology to make our lives to a degree easier. And I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing at all, but it's just something to keep in mind for designing a system to benefit the most people is you want to make sure it benefits people and also can't be taken advantage of by most people. I would say, and this is just what I always say whenever human nature is brought up into arguments, is it not a part of the human condition to manipulate nature in itself? 
I mean, it's yeah. very against the nature of something to go towards space, you know, to industrialize and so on, right? We have this idea of human nature, but in reality, if we look at it through a historical lens, we see this idea of human nature being a very malleable thing, which is changing constantly over time and can be basically boiled down to the human condition's duty to change to what is the most efficient or the best version of what human nature becomes in this area. Because human nature is constantly something different by definition, depending on the time frame you're looking at it in, you know? Yeah. And I think that's actually true. Like, I actually think that we'll end up going to a socialistic state or communistic state in the next 500 years, because human nature will have changed so much that we're, you know, we can make it work and we'll have the technology to make it work. Would you say that it's more in line with human nature to be that kind of state? Not currently, I don't think. I mean, the thing I like about capitalism a lot is that it harnesses a human trait that is normally associated negatively, which is selfishness, and turns that into like an engine for growth and economic growth and prosperity. Because it's not out of the like the kindness of the business owner's heart that they're improving your life with the good that they're providing or the service they're providing you. It's the money they pay you for that good or service that then improves their life. But the way the system works is that people compete for your your money, you know, your attention. Yeah. And that therefore improves, you know, your life and your economic standing whilst improving theirs because of their self-interest to do so. Just to make sure I'm understanding you, Roddy. So you're saying that basically selfishness, the desire to succeed, is a large component in fueling the capitalist system. Yeah. I agree. Because if I, if I start a business, it's because I want to make money. If I make money, I'm benefiting myself. But I have to attract your money in order to better myself. So I'm going to try and be competitive and improve your lifestyle in your life to improve my life. Yeah, to touch on that. I think we all agree with that. I, yeah, I don't think there's any one who would say otherwise even here. But I just don't think that, in my opinion, that there's any kind of system you could have. You know, even in like the communist utopia that I imagine, I still think that people would try, that would have that in their nature if they were born with that kind of nature to begin with, that they would want to start some kind of business to make some money. And what I imagine is that there would be some kind of situation where the absolute lowest floor instead of homelessness would be what we imagine as like a prison or that kind of like dystopian communist housing where it was like all those big block buildings and everything. Let's not hate on brutalism here. No, I mean, I don't mind it. It's better than being homeless for sure. I mean, 100%. I think that having that be the absolute lowest station that you could reach if you just were the asshole who said, I'm, I refuse to work. I don't care how much of an asshole it makes me. I'm not going to work, then you still get one of those yep. little rooms in a block house and you get three meals a day, but that's all you get. And then everyone gets that. And that just becomes the lowest point that you can reach. And then if you yep. agree to be part of society, and I think social pressure would go a long way to doing that. If you actually know your neighbors, you know, the people in your community, they're going to give you dirty looks and it's going to make you feel like a piece of shit. If you are the asshole who decides not to work, that will motivate you a long way to go and actually participate in society and be a useful member. And I think that could be a huge motivator. And I guess that's probably, you know, it sounds like I'm advocating for market socialism at this point, but you definitely could make the case that even then you could have, that would make capitalism work better. Imagine if everyone could leave their job for any amount of time because they knew that they wouldn't starve if they did it. How many more people actually would be yeah. entrepreneurs and start businesses and be able to have them take off because they have the time and the ability and the energy to work on them? Yeah, so I, I know I keep dropping other books on here, which is funny because I'm supposed to be plugging mine, but <laughs> there's, uh, there's another great anarchist writer. He actually died this year named David Graeber. He was my unofficial oh, yeah. mentor. Okay. And, okay. you know, he was actually the guy that encouraged me to write my first book. He has this wonderful volume called Bullshit Jobs. And one of the things that he puts forth in this is related, again, to this sort of third industrial revolution or technological revolution that we've had under Ronald Reagan and, you know, henceforth 
from there is, yeah, the need for labor, pure labor, physical labor is becoming less and less because of technological reforms. And what Graeber sets forth is the idea that we have to work for our necessities, for healthcare, for food, for a roof, things like that, is putting people in a position where they have to take on jobs that should not even fucking exist. I agree. They're bad for the environment. They're bad for society. They're bad for tons of things for reasons that I could go on about. But the thing is, is we are officially at a point that the fact that we have to work just to survive is becoming counterintuitive. And I think that that's a wonderful point to make because what is the point of all of these technological reforms if not to help us work less? Mm -hmm. So... The thing I'd like to piggyback off of that with is, and this is going, just don't be afraid with the framework that I'm about to set up is all I'm going to say. Is don't, don't be afraid. <laughs> this is a good preface. I like it. Um, you know, we have this idea of, oh, what is freedom? Oh, it's buying my own house. It's, you know, securing my own food and so on and so forth. But philosophically, at least we see that freedom innately can become restricting in itself. You know, when we talk about free will and so on through uh, Sartre, it becomes a very restrictive thing. So I think that it applies similarly when we talk about basic necessities in the sense of these things in order to secure them requires a, a numerous amount of work and strain and difficulty. In a way, the freedom that we postulate ideologically right now to obtain these things and have the option to go get them for yourself and hoorah really becomes this limiting variable on the potentiality for humans to progress and have these further productivities, something that, like you're saying, is becoming more and more outdated the, the more and more we develop historically. Obviously, there are places in the world that don't have the capacity to do such levels of regulation to provide this through the entirety of the civilization. But in places where it can, this should absolutely be done for the betterment of the people's not only internal human dignity to say, this is me, I want to be this, I'm not going to be constrained by some financial restraint in the guise of what Reagan has become an amazing mythos of being representative of freedom. Yeah, well said. All right, so I have like two minutes left of uh, the material that I brought. If you want me to just run through it real quick, it's just more on the Democrats yeah. and their complicity with Reaganism. All right, so the 1980s were the triumph of upper America, the political ascendancy of the rich and the glorification of capitalism, free markets, and finance. When government policy enriched the already rich, it was not called welfare. This was not as obvious as the monthly checks to the poor. It most often took the form of generous changes in the tax system. The Reagan administration, with the help of Democrats in Congress, lowered the tax rate on the very rich to 50%, and in 1986, a coalition of Republicans and Democrats sponsored another, quote, tax reform bill that lowered the top rate to 28%. Bartlett and Steele noted that a schoolteacher, a factory worker, and a billionaire could all pay 28%. So as a result of all the tax bills from 1978 to 1990, the net worth of the Forbes 400, chosen as the richest in the country by Forbes magazine, advertising itself as a capitalist tool, was tripled. About $70 billion a year was lost in government revenue, so that in those 13 years, the wealthiest 1% of the country gained a trillion dollars. By the end of the Reagan years, the gap between the rich and poor in the United States had grown dramatically, where in 1980, the chief executive officers of corporations made 40 times as much in salary as the average factory worker. By 1989, they were making 93 times as much. In the dozen years from 1977 to 89, the before-tax income of the richest 1% rose 77%. Meanwhile, for the poorest two-fifths of the population, there was no gain at all, indeed a small decline. And because of the favorable changes for the rich in the tax structure, the richest 1% in the decade ending in 1990 saw their after-tax income increase 87%. In the same period, the after-tax income of the lower four-fifths of the population either went down 5% at the poorest level or went up no more than 8.6%. So that's all I have. Just looking back at that last little passage I read, the idea that CEOs would be making only 90 times 
<laughs> right. Only 90. Yeah. Points. I mean, that just seems like it seems like a paradise compared to where we're at now. I'm reminiscing no shit. Well, you know, something that's also, you know, related to this. I know I've talked a lot about foreign affairs, but there's something on the domestic front that was related to, you know, at the same time that Reagan is funneling this money upwards, he's also emboldening the prison industrial complex. And one thing that has made, yeah. look, Russia and China are old countries, right? The United States compared to them, the U.S. is a fucking teenager. How do you think we got this powerful this fast? It's because of an indentured servant class. It's because of slavery, perpetual slavery. That's how we got this big this fast. Mm -hmm. We couldn't have done it no. fair. Otherwise, we wouldn't be above China on the power ranking. That's just not how it works. So with Ronald Reagan, one of the things that accompanied this funneling of money upwards was also creating larger swaths of people in prison working for nothing. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's no coincidence that trickle-down economics happened at the same time as the emboldenment of the prison industrial complex, which started with Nixon, but Reagan is the one that amped it up to the point where it is now. When you shop at Target, when you go to Starbucks, when you go to Walmart, any of those places where you get cheap goods, Whole Foods is another big one, by the way, mm -hmm. you are buying shit from people who are in prison, often for nonviolent offenses that will affect yep. their life permanently, whether or not they get out. Yep. That's why this whole American dream of cheap products and filling your house with all this shit is just built on toothpicks. It's built on suffering and toothpicks. The fact that these two things coincided under Reagan is not coincidental at all. Mm -hmm. no, that's a great point. And that's the American dream in a nutshell, is that if we're all owed this much based on our community and what we provide, we provide collectively, then if we make certain people really impoverished, it gives us the opportunity to get lucky and be and have more resource than we deserve. And that's the American dream is, can you become the person who is lucky, who gets to have more than you truly need, more than you truly deserve, at the cost of having this gamble of whether or not you may become one of the impoverished. You know, not even just the free prison labor that you're getting here at home, but the- Which is protected in the constitution. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. yep. show, show is. But all the people who immigrate here hoping for a better life and work below minimum wage under the table and are exploited just because they have to be, because it's the only way that they'll be allowed to stay here. And even now we're cracking down on that as if they are the source of the problems in the country. But then also the global south, the entire labor force of all these countries that are working on poverty wages that we know are working in sweatshops. We depend on them for all of our consumer goods that we buy so cheaply. It's not even just enough that it's like the free prison labor or the immigrants or the global south. It has to be all three to hold up this house of cards. It has always depended on slave labor and has never really changed just the form of it. It's the only thing that's changed. True. And the only thing that I could add to that is, again, just the thing that made Reagan and Thatcher so interesting is the fact that the Soviet Union fell at the time that it did because it made this model explode. It's always been that way in the U.S., but it hasn't been that way globally to the extent that it is until the Soviet Union fell because then all bets were off. Yeah then it was like everyone's going to embrace this and we're going to make sure at the barrel of a gun that everyone embraced this because the proxy wars are over. Who's going to fucking stop us, basically? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we saw measures of this in Central and South America ever since even Teddy Roosevelt, but to the extent that it became after the 1980s, 
was just unapologetic. I mean, case in point, to sell us the Iraq war the second time, all they had to do was hold up a baggie of something we couldn't even fucking see on TV, (laughs) and suddenly we dismantle a whole country. This motherfucker took a Ziploc bag in front of a congressional committee and held it up and shook it, and we took down the whole Middle East. Think about that. That's insane. (laughs) Sterling is making the ex- extremely horrified face at this empty baggie. <laughs> not, not the baggie. I have to add two things to this. The first of which being referring to this invasion of Iraq, you know, you have George Bush coming in and saying, you know, God told me to invade Iraq. <laughs> There's a, a really strange thing to me. Can I just go on quote and say, fuck God? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's that important to, you know, because a lot of old Islam or other religions are inherently hateful or painful, what have you, with this misidentification that this guy just invaded an entire like section of the world because he had a conversation with God recognize this in Christian terms, right? (laughs) The second thing being that I find so interesting about what you were talking about was this, you know, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, you have what is called the end of ideology, the winner of capitalism and neoliberalism dominating this false sentiment that, well, we've done it. We've reached the end of history. There's no debate for which one's better anymore. That is precisely the thing that I I am at least doing my best with in my little philosophical analysis to say is wrong. Obviously, we haven't. We've only been manufactured a consent into believing this false narrative of that. Next episode, I have a lot of shit prepared for this. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, uh, we're good. We'll, we'll definitely say, obviously, we're doing part two of, of Reagan. Uh, in fact, we could probably go ahead and wrap it up. I've got quite a bit that I can bring into the next episode. I think we have more than enough content. All I can say is I appreciate you guys having me on. Appreciate you editing it and everything. Yeah, dude, anytime you want to come on, Jaron, you were a more than welcome addition. You have a lot of good points to make and a lot of really good input. So I definitely appreciate you coming on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hey, I mean, I'd be you, happy you, to, you, man. You know a little, you know a good bit about the Iran Contra deal too, right? Oh yeah, yeah, plenty. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> may, may, if it, if it's if it's cool with everyone else, I mean, I'd I'd love to have you back next week to uh, jump into that Iran Contra topic because that's a big part for the next week's episode. Absolutely, absolutely, oh, dog. Anytime y'all want to have me on, I'm totally down. Okay. Funny thing about that too, and then I'll let you go, is my uncle actually served in Desert Storm and the only weapons they managed to unearth were American made. Hmm. Hell yeah. Funny how that works. Or, or Israeli made, you know, in some cases. Yeah. Hey man, again, you're talking to the, a Jew that, that doesn't that really a- like Israel. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, I know, take that I know many the of them. Episode with me because that's going to piss a lot of people <laughs> off. But, uh, We're cool pissing off Israelis. <laughs> Any Zionist. Oh, Habibi. Habibi, my friend. Why <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Well, then uh, let's just wrap it up there. We'll uh, just do some plugs. And since we already did sort of an outro earlier, we can just wrap it up there. So um, I'm assuming, Cosper, you want to plug the DSA. So that's DSAUSA.org. I will plug the SRA socialistra.org and the PSL, which is PSL web Sterling. I'll plug our Twitter for you. So that's turn leftist pod at Twitter. Uh, and as always Ward Lolly, you can find him on Instagram, W A R D L A W L E Y. Jaron, you want to just list off the title of your book one more time? Absolutely. Uh, my newest release is the politics of fear by Jaron D Perlman. You can purchase it at jaronperlman.com J A R O N P E A R L M A N.com. Oh yeah. Before I forget, also, Sterling's friend's Spendify app. Definitely check that out. That's my boy, Eldridge. And uh, yeah, and join us on the Discord as well. You can find actually all the links on linktree.com slash turnleftist. 
all the links for our Discord and, uh, you know, backup Instagram and all that bullshit. I think that's all the plugs unless I'm forgetting anything. Anybody else got anything? Cool. All right. Well, then we'll wrap it up there. And then we will pick up on part two of our Ronald Reagan slash Thatcher series, which is probably going to end up being four parts <laughs> if we have anywhere near as much material on Thatcher as we did about Reagan. Yep. So we are booked up for the next three weeks, at least, gentlemen. Strap in. <laughs> Strap in and strap on. <laughs> yeah. Consensual. Consensually. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you guys all again very much. Thank you everyone for listening. Please tell your friends, spread the podcast, help us out, leave us some good reviews, give us some uh, ratings on iTunes and all the uh, platforms that you listen to us on. We are now on SoundCloud and uh, Spotify. I believe we were always on Spotify. But we're definitely now on SoundCloud if we weren't before. So anywhere you want to find us, we are there. I've been reading. So, I, uh, I, fr- I never really knew that people were actually going on like uh, Apple Podcasts and iTunes and like writing reviews for our show but uh i actually went on the other day and started reading some of them we got a, we got a, a, quite a few of them really and just inc- incredible they're so good man it was like making my heart swell like people genuinely loving it i was like oh that's that's so cool it, it, Dude, I'll, I'll take screen some, cap some of those and like uh, put yeah, it in yeah, discord because yeah. i never log yeah. into anything apple related i literally have just been so, saying rate us on itunes because i hear other podcasts say it and i thought Dude. it was a good thing to end the podcast with so <laughs> to hear the people actually doing, doing that, it that's huge Hey man, it's I mean, so cool. third so person cool. perspective. I've listened to all y'all's episodes. They're great. And look, I, I don't oh, even consider myself a communist, but I'm listening to them like this is, it's <laughs> fun. It's informative. Yeah. Um, it really hits all the marks for me. And generally when I listen to anything political, I just leave pissed off. So yeah. <laughs> I'm, I love what you guys I'm, are doing, whether or not I'm on it. It's like great. <laughs> Yeah, thanks awesome. so much, man. It awesome. means a lot, especially from someone Absolutely. like you who's obviously well-informed and knows what they're talking about. That means a lot. Oh, too. yeah. Oh, shit, I try to be. <laughs> <laughs> what is this, beer six? <laughs> yeah. I got a little buzz myself. <laughs> yeah, I had to pee what? All right, I'm doing this episode? Shit. <laughs> yeah, I got to pee right now. I'm going to take off. All right, see you guys. Dude, thanks everyone again. Right, Bye, thanks so easy. much. Take it easy. See you next week. Later, y'all. Peace. Yeah. Eric, I want to thank you for joining us, also known as Stalin's Gulag Camp on Instagram. It was a pleasure seeing you guys' point of view. Yeah, I mean, I will say that turned out a lot better than I thought. Uh, You came into the podcast saying you leaned a little more right than than any of us, and I expected that to be a total shit show and a disaster. But the good thing is you have a good sense of humor, luckily. It was awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I just wanted to say before I leave is that you guys are like appealing to talk to, I suppose, like a lot of people, I don't know if you've noticed, especially on like Twitter and Instagram comment sections on like the left, they're really toxic in it. Like it pushes people away. (laughs) Like, why do you think there's so much infighting, man? (laughs) I know. We don't even like them. We don't like ourselves. If they just like sat down if like if liberals just sat down and had a conversation like this they'd have a lot more success because i've seen so many people just get pushed away yeah. from the party because they're just so toxic but you know it's good talking to you guys so it was a pleasure nice talking with you i had a yes. blast yeah i mean i was also worried when you were telling us of your political line and i was like oh man i feel like we're going to just offend him and end up fighting a lot but i mean not only do i think we got along i think you truly did add to the discussion and that is so appreciated 100 oh good talking you guys see ya absolutely man take it easy we we'll definitely right. bring you back another time if you're available. all right i'll just contact me you know where to contact me yeah i got you Mike, we can't hear you if you're talking. All right, now that that right-wing bastard's gone. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I think your mic's muted. He's great.
Yeah, it was muted. I had okay, coughed okay. and I forgot to unmute it. <laughs> I was just going to, I was going to say to Eric before we left, you know, anytime I've made the mistake of getting into a conversation with a right winger online or somebody who calls themselves a libertarian, like it usually just devolves into trolling, but yeah. Yeah, Eric was definitely um, a lot oh, more, yeah, yeah so just awesome. fantastic. Really willing to actually engage in good faith and just have Precisely. good talking points and everything. It's really, it, that makes yep. a huge difference. And, you know, I feel like a lot could be said of yep. doing that, you know, I'm going to sound like Joe Rogan, but like, that's the difference I think between having long form conversations <laughs> with people where you actually get to express your points instead of just having these snippets and, you know, that's why mainstream media is a failure and social media is a failure. Just fuck Completely it. What do you have there, Jaron? Uh, well, dude, I was just going to say, I think that that's a, a big talking point that has to do with Reagan is there was a point in time where yes. there were good conservative talking points. And when I say good, not necessarily something I agree with, but something that at least has viability. And I yes. think that Ronald Reagan and this fucking religion of rugged individualism has depreciated from that. I don't even like these people, but it has depreciated from a formerly good, relatively good platform that they had into Trumpism, which is just unrecognizable yeah. from like the conservatism that we saw in the 50s when there was this robust middle class and everything. I, I think that Reagan's sensational, as you call it, mythology has allowed conservatives to debase themselves so badly that when you go online and try to talk to them now... I don't even know what to compare it to. Uh, it, it is beyond yeah. cult behavior. It's absolutely insane. Yeah. You it's can't pure talk ideology. <laughs> Brother, they're still in the election. <laughs> hey, did you guys, by the way, did you guys see the new Stop the Steal logo? <laughs> oh, the one that looks like a fucking yeah, dude. swastika? Yeah, dude. It's a Are you serious? Swastika. Dude, I swear to God. It, it does. So imagine if I could describe it in audio format. Imagine oh, you have, pull it up right now. you just have a blue S, like a hard 90 degree angles S, and then straight through it, <laughs> you have a red line that goes through the middle. So it's a swastika minus just two little dashes on either side of that red line. But it is a fucking swastika. And it's, they say ostensibly it's supposed to represent Biden doing that sort of S curve that he had where you know, he was going straight along and then had a sudden spike up in votes and then went straight along after that. And then whereas Trump's line just went straight through the whole time and that's why he lost. But I mean, that cannot be an accident, even if it is an accident, even if you design that by accident, but then the decision to go with it and to actually put it on all the memes and like just stick it in the corner of all the little graphics that they're putting out there and all their safe spaces. It's a fucking swastika. There's no two ways about it. It's a fucking swastika. It, it had to be on purpose. It was so obvious. Not only did it have to be on purpose, I'm genuinely curious if it didn't start as someone fucking with them and them just yeah. rolling with it and not realizing it. <laughs> like, oh, speaking of uh, conservative safe spaces, this is fun. Parlor is full of porn now. Nice. That was inevitable. Don't, don't make it happen, dude. Don't make me join. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What is that? What is the... Uh, what does right-wing porn the, look like? <laughs> it's just being, like, you know, emasculated by AOC or something. Like, that's at least what I see in my head, right? Either that or getting butt-fucked by Ronald Reagan. I mean, you know, full circle here. Like. Hot! With consent, though. With consent in this Spicy. case. Sorry, were we going to say, Cosper, what's the what? Oh, I was going to say, what is that, Uh, you know, I always see... I think it's 4chan... It's like a slash Paul or something oh, yeah. like that. Yeah, that's fortunate. I've never, I've never been on this website. It's completely don't bother. Off topic. You're, you're fine. You're fine. Don't do it. <laughs> okay. Never Twenty mind. years ago, it was okay, but it's long since decayed. Uh, back when you could buy like 
acid and shit off of there. Yeah, that was great. But nowadays it's mostly QAnon. Yeah. Times have changed, my friends. No more acid now, QAnon. What a ripoff. Yeah, trickle down. Are Darknet markets still a thing? <laughs> That's that trickle away. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs>